afternoon. I trust that you are well. It's so good to be here. I feel like I should greet you with many greetings, beginning with uh, Labor Day last year, Happy Labor Day, followed by Merry Christmas, followed by Happy New Year, followed by Happy Valentine's, and then uh, good morning. Oh, good afternoon. Good afternoon for, for today. But I'm very glad to be here. Always a pleasure to be invited to Minister God's Word here. My name is John Agagwa. I serve as one of the pastors uh, at the city campus, and I'm definitely very glad to be, to be here. I know that this particular Sunday you are to look at the deadly sin of gluttony, and I find it a little suspicious that on this day they shut down the restaurant. <laughs> Do you not find it a li- just a little, just a little suspicious? That when they were to tackle the sin of gluttony, they, it, it's like a test. It's like they're testing you to know if should we deal with this issue or not, depending on your response. So be careful how you respond in this season. Your pastors are watching. I have the great privilege of being married to one wonderful uh, wife with whom we have been blessed with one daughter who, as uh, Devi has mentioned, turns one today. Like a whole one year, you know. Yeah, so we are, we are very excited about it. We are doing something small for her uh, this afternoon. Okay, we're doing something small for ourselves. <laughs> Let me start pretending we're doing it for her. We're doing it for ourselves. Um, and uh, we, are, we are very, very excited about it. I'm also launching a book um, in the same... No, wait, let me finish, let me finish. Launching a book in the same, in the same uh, and the title of the book is Parenting for the Long Haul. <laughs> parenting for the Long Haul. We feel like after, uh, I feel like after parenting for one whole year, I should advise other parents. <laughs> Help them with the tips, the five P's of parenting and, uh, and how we coped, my wife and I. So that book is coming to a bookshop near you very soon. But that said, our daughter has been such a blessing to us. Uh, very grateful, my, my, wife, and I, my wife and I, to, to, to the gift that God has been to us through her. So those of you who are wondering how you can bless her on her birthday, we had a long conversation with her before I came in the morning. Uh, and we were just talking with her and I was asking her, so, you know, baby, what would you like for your birthday? And she said, Empesa. <laughs> So, in case you want to bless her, I, I already asked her what she likes. She said she likes Mpesa, and uh, for now she is using her dad's number, <laughs> just for this season. So, in case you want to be a blessing to her on her birthday, please, uh, that is the way that you can be a blessing to her. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about my daughter, though sometimes I feel like she takes a lot of my wife's uh, time, a lot, a lot of our time. Uh, sometimes I feel like telling her, you know, before you were, I am. <laughs> but we are, we are grateful to God. Now she's turned one. So if you're here and you're a landlord, you have bed sitters somewhere, we would like to get one for her. <laughs> she's, she has come of age. We can, <laughs> we can never pray enough. Allow me to pray. Our Lord, we are so grateful to you that you've given us an opportunity to gather again and to hear your word. I pray that it would please you to move me out of the way so that you would minister to your people. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, I know that you have been doing a series on the seven deadly sins, um, and I am very glad that I am not coming to deal with those weighty matters. I have left that to your pastors here to deal with. I will be leading, dealing with the later matters of conversion. Um, and so I'd, I'd like us to turn to the book of Acts chapter 9. The title of my message is The Conversion of Saul. The title of my message is The Conversion of Saul. And like us to read through this chapter and find out what are some of the lessons that we can glean about how God converted Saul. Acts chapter 9, we'll read from verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus whose name was Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, yeah, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come to him and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And that is the word of the Lord. I'd like us to consider the conversion of Saul and the lessons that the Lord will bring to our attention from this text under three big subheadings. The first one is the condition of Saul. The second one is the conviction of Saul. And the third one is the conversion of Saul. The first is the condition, 
The second is the conviction. And the third is the conversion. I want you to notice our first verse. He says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Our introduction to this man in this chapter is one who is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. The reason he uses that phrase, breathing, is because this had become so common for Saul. It was the same as breathing. It's not just speaking about that he was spewing and speaking because this was a serikali ya kusema na kutenda. He was actually threatening them and going ahead with the threats and arresting them and killing them. He says he was breathing threats and murder. In fact, this verse says that he was still breathing because this is not where he began. We are introduced to this man in chapter 7 where he is giving consent to the murder and stoning of Stephen. In chapter 8, when it begins, right after they have killed Stephen, this is what we are told, and Saul approved of his execution. In verse 3, we are told that Saul, of chapter 8, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was a self-motivated, wicked man. He needed permission. In fact, he was pursuing Christians. Christians realized, hey, in this jurisdiction, we cannot live our life safely. So they escaped to other different jurisdictions. He went to the greater government and he asked to be given letters so that he can pursue them where they have gone, bring them back here and kill them and put them in prison. Paul is still breathing murderous threats. At this point, you will be forgiven for assuming that Saul was a wicked pagan who hates God and all that is called God. You will be forgiven to think him a heartless, cold murderer. You will be forgiven for thinking that there was something greatly terrible with his upbringing. You will look at Saul and ask him, who is your mother? And you would be forgiven. But nothing could be further from the truth. Look at Paul's upbringing. Acts chapter 22 verse 3. He gives us a snippet of how he was brought up. You might think that somebody dropped him as a child, but no. Acts chapter 22 verse 3 says, Paul speaking to others about his upbringing. He says, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus in Sicilia, in Cilicia. He says, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Paul is saying, I grew up in a Christian home. I was brought up in the strict laws of our father. I attended the best theological school of Gamaliel, who was the teacher at the time of Israel. He gives us an interesting detail later on when he is recounting. He really likes to talk about his childhood. He talks about it again in chapter 26. In verse 4, he says, my manner of life from my youth. He says, my manner of life from my youth 
spent from the beginning amongst my own nation in Jerusalem is known to all the Jews. They have known me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now, many of us might read that and think that's not good. Pharisees were not good. No. Pharisees became bad because Jesus revealed their hearts. Outwardly, the Pharisees were actually very respected religious leaders. The Pharisees had, were very fastidious to the law. They were so fastidious and strict to the law that when Jesus wanted to teach the nature of righteousness that God requires, he used them as an example. He said, unless your righteousness supersedes the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. He used them as the standard. He says, do you want to know how, how, how deeply God cares about righteousness? Look at the Pharisees. They counted steps on the Sabbath. They counted steps. What was the last time you counted how many steps you walked? For any reason. Well, some of you have smartwatches that do that for you. These ones had no smartwatches. And they knew you have walked. You couldn't walk more than 600 steps on the Sabbath. So imagine if there's 50, 659 step was here and there is your house. <laughs> you just make camp and sleep here. They were fastidious to the law. Paul says, I grew under that kind of strict instruction. I was fastidious. I was deeply religious. Here is what Paul's, a day in Paul's life might look like. He would wake up in the morning and attend the temple service. After that, he will spend time in prayer. And then later on, he will go to the evening service. And then later on, he will be his turn to, to exhort the people in the synagogue. And so he'd be preparing a sermon to teach on the, on the tenets of the Mosaic law. That's this guy's life. And yet, this same man will drag helpless Christian women to prison with their children and husbands. He will murder Christian fathers and turn Christian children fatherless and orphans. And to add on all this, you say, well, how can he live with himself? This man must have really been struggling in his heart. Acts chapter 23, verse 1. You think he was struggling in his heart? Acts 23, 1 says, And Paul, Saul, looking intently at the council, Paul says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. No, the man is not troubled in his heart. He said, I had lived in all good conscience. You know, it reminds me of the words of our Lord Jesus. He said, in those days, those who kill you will believe that they do service for God. Paul says he lived in good conscience. What is the point that this text is trying to make to us, beloved? That the thing that changes a man's heart is not his religion. Religion never cleansed a man's heart. Religion never changed a man's heart. This man was prayerful. This man was reading the scriptures. And yet in his heart he was full of hate and murder towards a specific group of people. And he was killing them right, left, and center. And he believed that he was right before God in good conscience. 
I've always told people the religion and the study of the scriptures and the prayer that does not make you loving towards other people is not from God. It has not changed your heart. Jesus said, this is the whole purpose of the law. He says that you might learn to do what? To love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And to do what? And to love others as yourself. If all your reading of the scriptures, if all your prayer, if all your fasting, if all your church attendance has not made you more loving towards other people, all you have is empty religion. A religion that changes not. That's what Paul had. Empty religion. His heart was completely unchanged. And I fear that even in our day there may be many like Saul that are living their lives in, in many ways, showing that their religion is not truthful. These people might pray in the morning, but they sin in the evening. They might profess to know God, but they do not walk even as he walked. You know, Jesus, Jesus and John both said this truth. He says, how can you claim to love God whom you have not seen and not love man who is made in his own image? He says, the way you know that you have true religion is not based on how many verses you read in the morning. It's not based on how many uh, prayers you have said and how many times you have fasted. It's based on how you treat the next person seated next to you, how you treat your boss who doesn't like you very much, how you treat your clients, how you treat people. He says, if you really loved God whom you can't see, it will reflect in how you love people who are made in his image. And here we find a man who has great religion, but is empty of its transformation. Because God wants to show you and I that it is not religion that changes the hearts of men. Don't you know many people who in the name of religion have done atrocious things? Some in the name of Christian religion. Some in the name of other religions. They have done atrocious things. Now, I'm not speaking about those people who suffer temptation. Those people who deal and, and, they, and they suffer the weight of temptation, but they are weak and they are Christians and they fall. They know I will not do this again. I'm trusting God. I repent and then I wake up and I find that I have done it again. I have lied again. I have done whatever sin it is. I'm not speaking about those that are, as the scripture says, the righteous men who fall seven times but rise up again, bound to walk the difficult, narrow path that Jesus bid us to walk. I'm not speaking concerning those. Those are pure children of God. I'm speaking about those that hold these tendencies of Saul, the self-deceived professing Christian who makes it their goal not only to fall into the mud, but also to swim in it. The one who claims to be a brother, but is sexually immoral. It's not a struggle. They are settled. It's just part of their life. They are greedy, idolaters, verbal abusers. All the sins your pastors have been talking to you about these couple of weeks. Drunkards, swindlers. Their religion has done nothing, and truthfully, it can't do nothing to change their hearts. Beloved, run away from empty religion. Religion might succeed indeed in modifying your behavior, but it will never restructure and recondition your heart. Only God can do that. 
Only the blood of Christ that was shed at Calvary can truly change the heart of men. We see his condition. But secondly, we see Saul's conviction. We see Saul's conviction. Notice verse 3 of chapter 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him as he went on his way. As the man was going on his way, as he was going about his business. It was just another day, a usual day. There was nothing particularly special about this day. He woke up as usual, bent on his murderer's ways as usual. And he was walking with a bunch of murderer's friends of his as usual, going to arrest Christians and to put them in prisons and hopefully kill them. As he went on his way, as he went about his usual business, wicked business, but usual business nonetheless, the scripture says, Jesus stopped him. You say, what's the big deal? The big deal is, don't you love the fact that Jesus doesn't need background music to intervene? There was no background music, no worship set. Paul was not walking around with a choir just preparing the atmosphere for the move of God. No, he was just going about his business. Oftentimes I find that Christians sometimes believe that unless the atmosphere has been properly prepared, God is incapable of moving. No, beloved, God knows how to move on a busy street as you're crossing the road, as you're having lunch with a friend, as you're arguing with your spouse. Okay, maybe that one he might wait for you to finish. But <laughs> God knows how to move. God doesn't need for things to quiet down so that he can speak to his people. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there is no place for music. Oh, there is. In fact, if we have time, we'll invite the worship team back on stage so that we can spend some time in prayer at the end. There is wonderful place for that. But the problem I have is that oftentimes, Christians sense or feel like they limit God to that, that unless that has happened, that God may not move. Oh, no, but he can move in your business, in your office, as you go about your way. That's what happens to Saul. The scripture says, a light brighter than the noonday sun shone. A light brighter. I can't even imagine what's brighter than the noonday sun. Paul saw the glory of Jesus. The Bible says he fell flat to the ground and all those that were with him. And then Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You see, at this point, Jesus reveals the depth of Paul's sin. Up to this time, Paul thought that all he was doing was persecuting the inconsequential, useless Christians. But Jesus shows up and says, why do you persecute me? And Paul might have asked, wait, what, what do you mean? I, I haven't touched you. It's these people I've been dealing with. But Jesus says, me. And when Paul asks him, who are you? 
because he thought maybe he's one of the people he killed that has ascended <laughs> and has come to haunt him as a ghost. He says, Which, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He repeats it twice. Jesus takes offenses against his church personally. Why? Because the Bible says he is the head and his church is his body. What you do to the body, you have done to the head. The body is one, right? Your body never, you know, if you hurt the toe of your body, your whole body responds. And for some reason, it's always the toe. Never notice, you're just walking there, poof. And your whole body responds. The right arm runs quickly to console the toe. This other leg feels like it can contribute by hopping around. Your mouth begins to shout, you know. Every, everything comes. It's, and you don't go like, you know, my toe, it's, it's, I, I was hurt. Why didn't you come to, you can't leave your toe and come to, you know, my toe was hurt. No, it's you who stayed at home because the toe, it's you. Jesus takes it personally. And I've always said that we have to be careful how we deal with the body of Christ. Because as imperfect as the body is, and as many issues as the body of Christ has, it is still the body of Christ. Do you think these Christians were perfect? Of course they were not. Look at Ananias. He was already arguing with Jesus. This man, I don't like him. You're sending me to, I, I don't like him a lot. These were not a bunch of perfect people, and yet when they were touched, Jesus said, why are you touching me? And this theme of the unity of Christ and his body will continue through the scriptures because you will find at a certain point when Jesus talks about the great judgment, in Matthew chapter 25, he said that the goats were put on one side and the what? The sheep were put on the other side. And what was the question? He said, when I was hungry, you did not feed me. He says, when I was thirsty, you did not give me a drink. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. He's speaking to the goats. And the goats will ask him, but when did we see you and you were hungry and we did nothing? He said, for as much as you refuse to do it to one of these, you refuse to do it to me. And later on about the sheep, he will tell them the same thing. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they will say, when did we visit you in prison? And he will say, in as much as you did it to one of these, you did it to me. Beloved, you and I have to be careful how we deal with the body of Christ, how we deal with the people that call upon his name. The Bible says, do good to all men, especially to those of the household of faith. Because God, the Bible says in the book of Zechariah that the people of God are the apple of God's eye. Nobody ever poked God's eye and got away with it. And so Paul realizes that his sin is far deeper than he had assumed. He's not just sinning against believers. He's sinning against Jesus, against God himself. You see, this is both an encouraging truth and a convicting one. It's encouraging because imagine Jesus identifies with you so personally. Whatever happens to you, O saint, he takes it as one that has happened to him. 
And that's the reason why the Bible says vengeance is mine, saith God. Don't, don't go around looking for vengeance and trying to take matters into your own hands. Whatever was done to you was done to him. Let him take vengeance. It frees us. Imagine what consolation the, the saints would have had when Paul went and told them as he recounted his experience and he said to them, saints, you know, I, I, I was coming and I met the Lord. He says, oh, really, you saw him? Yes, I saw him. What did he look like? I have a feeling that's the first question they would have asked. They would say, well, I, I couldn't see him. He was, it was too bright. Say, so, okay, what did he say? He said, well, he said, I'm persecuting him. But you mean you went even to heaven and started? No, 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 no. In as far as I touched you, he said I touched him. Imagine what consolation it would have been to the saints at the time who might have thought that Jesus had forgotten about them because they were going through so grievous pain and persecution. And they realized, oh my goodness, Jesus takes it personally. So are you here and you're facing some persecution of some kind, perhaps some hatred at work or missing out on promotion because having a person with your convictions at the top is not good for business? Or maybe facing a court case because you are unwilling to pay the bribe to make things disappear, even though you know that you're innocent. And you're being persecuted and it's because of your values. Would you take heart? Jesus feels your pain. But perhaps you're here and you are the perpetrator. You are the government official who will not allow that person to get their services unless you're bribed. You are the officer who will hold the pensions of another unless you're given a small cut. They might look weak, but their father is not. The Bible calls him a consuming fire. Nobody ever touched his children and got away with it. Are you being persecuted for his namesake? Blessed are you. But are you persecuting saints? on account of Christ and the values they hold for him, woe unto you. You see, if, Paul, if Saul had thought that his bad encounter, his, his, his habits, the things he was doing were bad, Jesus shows him that it was far worse than he thought. Now at this point, if you knew nothing of Jesus, When you get to verse 6, here's what you expect. The verse 6 says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. You find but. Now, if you know nothing of Jesus, you've never heard of him, this is the first incident you're reading about him, you're not expecting but at this point. You're expecting you have been persecuting me, therefore. Iwe funzo kwa wengine wenye tabia kama hiyo. But that's not what you find. You find but. You know what but means? Oh, what a breath of grace. At this point, Paul must have been trembling. If Jesus shows up and he says, I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting. 
This brother, whoever he is, he is shining like the noonday sun, brighter than that. Paul was not waiting for the next instructions. He was trembling. He was flat on the ground. Imagine what breath came to him when that man says, but. Because that's the Jesus we serve. He says, go into the city. And you will be told what to do. At this point, it makes sense why Jesus called him Saul, Saul. He called him twice. Why did he call him twice? We know that Jesus was not a stammerer. Why did he call him twice? It's not like Paul was walking and he didn't hear the first time Saul. And then he goes, Saul. No. Because the way the Greeks and the Hebrews at the time exclaimed emotion in writing was through writing a word twice. It was communicating that that word has been spoken with deep emotion. You and I today use exclamation mark or emojis. They didn't have emojis and they didn't use exclamation marks. So if they wanted to communicate that that person spoke with emotion, they would say, They will write the word twice. That doesn't necessarily mean that the man spoke the words twice. It just means the way to communicate the emotion with which he spoke in writing is to write that word twice. And so the communication here is that that Jesus spoke his name with deep emotion. And by the way, you'll find this throughout the scriptures. When, When God called Abraham, when Abraham was about to slaughter his son, he says, Abraham, Abraham. Now, that doesn't mean he called him twice necessarily. It means he called him with deep emotion. Or when the Bible says um, David heard that Absalom had died, what, how does he weep? He says, oh, Absalom, Absalom. When Jesus was calling Simeon and Simeon was behaving somehow, somehow, he said, Simeon, Simeon. When Martha was behaving somehow, somehow, you know, having issues with... Uh, her sister who was serving Jesus, Jesus called her Martha, Martha. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he saw what would later happen to Jerusalem by discernment, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. These were words that always were used to communicate emotion. He speaks about Jerusalem that way because he loves Jerusalem. Abraham, I mean, God loves Abraham. Um, David loves Absalom, Jesus loves Simeon, Jesus loves Martha, and now added to this list, Saul? This is what convicted Saul. Because in as much as he sees how much deeper of a sinner he is, it starts to realize just how much more loved he is than he ever believed. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 16 shows us that Paul would live with this experience for the rest of his life. He says, for this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the chief of sinners. Some of you are so bad you thought you were the chief of sinners. Well, I just like to point out that position was taken. It's taken by Paul. You can vie for assistant chief. <laughs> says, I who was chief of sinners... He says, I was shown mercy by Christ Jesus. He says, so that he might display his perfect patience. He says, do you know why Jesus chose to save me? 
so that future generations will say that if he saved that one, then perhaps he can save also me. You're here and you think you are so bad, you have messed up, you have done the wrong things. When was the last time you went to the government to give you a letter so that you can shut down Mamlaka Hill Chapel and persecute all of us here? When was the last time you dragged Christian fathers and mothers in the streets and put them in prison? When was the last time you killed a Christian for being a Christian? Chances are you haven't done that. And Jesus showed mercy to such a one. Now I say chances are because this is a big congregation. But even then, the Bible says, though your sins be red as scarlet, he will wash them white as snow. Beloved, have you known this kindness of Christ Jesus that convicts? And then lastly, the conversion. Notice verse 6, he says, but rise and go into the city. And you will be told what to do. What a change of plans. Arise. Go into the city. There you will be told what to do. The Bible says his eyes were open at this time and he saw nothing. All his life, Saul had lived with his physical eyes open, but he had been completely blind to spiritual things. And now for the first time in his life, his physical eyes have been shut, but he sees more clearly than he ever has. He says, arise and you will be told what to do. How do we know that Paul is converted? Because of what he says. He looks at who he sees and he says, who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord. The Bible says as many as confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, they will be saved. This is the beginning of Saul's conversion. And at this point, he's no longer in control of his life. Look at what Jesus tells him. Go and you shall be told what you will do. This was not a man you told what to do. Now his life is no longer in his hands. He says, go. You will be told what to do. When? You go. Who will tell me what to do? You go. How will I be told? You go. What is my responsibility? To go. <laughs> and you will be told what to do. His hands are no longer, his life is no longer in his hands. At this point, ask him, Saul, give me your 10-year plan. He has no 10-year plan. He is like Abraham. When God called Abraham, he told Abraham, go. Where? To a land I will show you. Ask Abraham to give you a 10-year plan. He does not know how far. Now, don't excuse yourself from 10-year plans. <laughs> Please, make 10-year plans, but subject them to the sovereignty of your master. Because he is Lord. In fact, he, saw, he told Ananias, he said, Ananias, tell this man, because I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name. That's what he told Ananias. I think that's the point Ananias changed his mind about going to talk to Saul. Because he was against it, and then Jesus added, I will, oh, so there is suffering. Okay, where, where did you say I will find it? This man has caused a lot of suffering to us. At least now he will get a taste of his own medicine. But that's what Jesus said. Now your life is in my hands. You will suffer. What is it to you if the Lord decides that suffering is part of what he has called you for? At least he called Saul for suffering. I know you have been fasting and praying. 
I saw a meme about, Lord, please don't make me one of your strong warriors for this year. <laughs> I, was, I was a warrior last year, please. <laughs> Find other recruits. There are people I can see. This one has not been doing any warfare. Do that one. Leave me free for this year at least. Let me take a break. And it's true, we are all like that. Didn't you read about John and Peter? Jesus was about to, to, to ascend to heaven. He had been raised from the dead. He was having discussions with them. And then he looked at, um, he looked at, jo- at Peter and he said, Peter, this is the way that you will die for me so that you will glorify me. Peter heard that and he said, ah. And uh, he said, what about this one? <laughs> he asked about John. He says, what about this one? Will, will we suffer? Tell me, I want to know about him. Why am I suffering? You have not said anything about this one. And Jesus looked at Peter and he said, what if I want him to live forever? What is that to you? You suffer for my name the way I have called you to. Let John enjoy his life. So much so that the disciples started to spread a rumor that John would live forever. That's why when John wrote his gospel, he had to write, and Jesus says, what if, not he said that this disciple would live forever. So the day he dies, they don't say, mm, milele. the thing is, Paul's life is no longer in his hands. It is in the hands of God. And whether God has chosen for him bounty, plentiful, or suffering, he's no longer in control of that. You see, Paul brings us to this point where he causes us to see that he has been converted. And that God is not unwilling to change anyone. Because he changes Saul. The man who had been persecuting the church right, left, and center. The one who was to be, who was the chief amongst sinners will soon be the chief amongst saints. The man who had done so much to bring down the kingdom of Jesus would be at the forefront of pushing it forward. Beloved, what is the lesson here today? One of the big lessons that we see in this scripture is this. Don't give up on them. Sometimes we look at people and we write them off because they look like Saul. They are persecuting the church. They are the farthest from God you have ever seen or encountered. And you look at them and you go like, this one would never become a Christian. But how do you know if God changed Saul? Saul of Tarsus, the murderous guy. If God could change Saul. Perhaps you're here and you've been praying for your son or for your daughter who you tried to bring up in the ways of the Lord, but they have deviated and they've gone their separate way and the wicked things that they are doing and the things you love them, but you're concerned for their soul. And maybe at some point you came to to believe that, ah, nothing will change. Nothing will happen. This one is lost. No, you don't know. The Bible says one day when Saul was going about his own business, Jesus showed up and changed the course of his life. I don't know who was praying for Saul. Maybe his mother. Maybe his brothers. Maybe the church. I don't know. But God moved and intervened and changed the life of Saul forever. Do not give up on anyone. 
Don't look at somebody and close their chapter and say, that one is a goner. Nothing will ever come from that person. That guy's destiny is shut. I I don't know that that person will ever be a Christian. No, you don't know their story. God's still writing it. And do you know at what point God chose Saul? It's an amazing thing if you read it. God did not choose Saul on the road to Damascus. Because we read this and we think that this is the point at which Paul was called by God. No. Read the Bible in the book of Galatians. Paul told us the point at which God called him. The Bible says, The Lord called me while I was still in my mother's womb. He separated me unto his call. While he was still in his mother's womb, what was he doing all his life? And sometimes you can look at someone and say, this one will not amount to anything. This one will never be a Christian. This one is written off. But God knows. He tells Ananias, I have chosen him. Nobody would have looked at Paul causing havoc and ravaging the church and said, Saul, I sense, I sense in my spirit a call to the ministry. No one. There was nothing to sense in the ministry for Saul. And yet God knew before the foundations of the earth that he had chosen this one. And you might look at somebody and they don't look like they're in church. They're just from one bar to the other, from one girl to the other, from one man to the other. And no preacher will ever look at them and say, I sense in my spirit. But God knows. And so you're here and you have friends or family or spouses that don't know God. Don't cease praying for them. Don't cease preaching the gospel. Because you don't know that God may have chosen them from birth. And you just might be the lovely instrument as was Ananias that he will use to bring them on course to where he has called them. And so was the story of Saul. So two big things as we close. Firstly, are you here and you are a Christian? Then take heart. Know for a fact that you are one with Christ and that he feels your pain. But at the same time, do not give up on those that you're praying for. Do not dismiss anyone on account of the ministry that God has given you and you feel like that other person might not. Do not dismiss anybody because if Saul can be saved, God is saying to us, all can be saved. And now you're here and you're not a Christian. You don't, you don't, you don't have really thought about this. And you probably think about yourself and you're like, but, but I have done so many atrocious things. Let the story of Saul remind you that though your sins be great, his mercy is more. Though your sins be red as scarlet, oh, he is the compassionate father who welcomes sinners. Do not run from him. Run to him. You know, when Paul was telling this story, let me invite the music team. When Paul was telling this story, he he said something. He was telling this story in the book of Acts chapter 26. He said, Oh, Agrippa, let me tell you about my own conversion. And he gives us a detail that's not quite given to us here. He says, the Lord said to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he said, it is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And the pricks were instruments in those days that farmers would use to 
to, to it was a sharp wooden piece that they would use to, to, to prick uh, and, and, and the oxen as they were plowing so that they would go in the right direction. If they were missing their way and missing the, the contours, they would, they would hit them so that they go in the right direction. Those were the pricks. And he says to Paul, Saul, it is hard for you, it is difficult for you to kick against the pricks. You know what Jesus is saying? My journey with you did not begin today. I have been trying to goad you, to, to, to prick you, to get you in the right direction, Saul. That's why I put you in a Christian home. That's why I put you under godly parents. That's why I exposed you to the law of Moses. That's why I took you to the best uh, theological school under Gamaliel. That's why I allowed you to face the guilt and the, the tension you felt in your heart when Stephen was being stoned and allowed you to hear him speak about Jesus and the point of the gospel. This is why I did this, because I was pricking you. And some of you here know that you know that you know God has been pricking you for years. You know that he has been trying to get your attention through that televangelist, through every sermon that you sit through, through your friends that are Christians. You're a godly person. You go to church much like Paul, but your heart has not been converted. The scripture says, today if you hear his voice, do not shut down your ear. You know why he says that? Because a day is coming when that voice will be no more. The Bible says there will be a famine in the land and there will be no voice from heaven. On that day, beloved, God will not be calling sinners to repentance. He will be coming to bring justice to those that will not turn to him. Run to Paul like him. And maybe you're here. And you're like the people like Ananias who wrote off Saul. They're like, Saul, Saul, no, God sent me to somebody else, not that guy. And some of you, maybe God has been telling you, talk to that guy, and you're like, no, Lord, do you, hey, do you know that guy? God is showing you that if you are a believer, you must trust that he who changed Saul can change your son, can change your husband, can change your mom, can change your friend, can change your boss. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he sways it whithersoever he pleases. I'd like to invite us to stand as we end this service. The music team will sing one chorus, but this is just to accord you a quiet, opportune time for you. You're here and you don't know God and you know that he's pricking upon your soul. Will you call on him to save you? Will you run to him to be your salvation? And maybe you're here and you've remembered someone who's pretty much a soul and you had given up on him. Will you take this time to pray and to ask God in his mercy, the same God that converted Saul, to reach out and to use his instruments to save those that he has chosen. Would you do that for the next a minute or so? And then I will, I will make a closing prayer. The altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the altar, the Father's arms are open wide, forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Oh, come, oh, come to 
as you did Saul of Tarsus. Lord, we pray that you will forgive us for where we have dismissed those that didn't look a certain way, those that didn't look like they have been chosen because they lived like Saul of Tarsus. I pray that you will forgive us for those that we have dismissed. And I pray that, Father Lord, indeed, for especially those that are here, that, Lord God, have not come to the knowledge of Christ and you are pricking them in their hearts, O oh God, and calling on to them to repent and to turn to you. I pray that this will be the day that much like Saul, they will be brought to the ground and converted to Christ for they will heed the voice that has spoken to them for years. I pray that, Father Lord, indeed, you will do these things all to the glory and honor of your precious name. All these things we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. 